Hello and welcome to episode 79 of Feckin' Metal. I'm your host, Fergal Trainer. It's a Friday, the sun is shining, and Iron Maiden's Future Past tour kicks off in two days over in Slovenia. What better way to celebrate that than to have a chat with Mick Wall about Iron Maiden? Of course, I've spoken to Mick about Iron Maiden in the past, but for this episode, or for this interview, I decided to particularly focus on the period of 1989 to 1999. That's from around the time Adrian Smith started thinking about leaving, uh, followed by Bruce leaving, of course, followed by both returning to the band. And we delve into the reasons why both might have left and what led them to return to Iron Maiden. We don't particularly focus on Blaze Bailey during that time period. I've covered off a lot of that with Andrew DeBroy on our series on Virtual Eleven. We specifically focus on Adrian and Bruce for this chat. Speaking of the future past tour, uh, the setlist will become apparent to us all now in a couple of days. And unless you're going to hibernate from online activity, you're going to know exactly what songs to expect on the upcoming dates. Of course, there's one in Dublin that I'll be attending, and I'm also attending shows in Glasgow and Manchester. So looking forward to seeing some of you there. I'm not going to keep you too long. Here is my chat with Mick Wall from, I think, two weeks ago, uh, where we talk about Iron Maiden. Enjoy. It's been a long time now since you were over in Dublin. Seems like another another lifetime ago. I know. Well, it was it was last September, yeah. um, which is too, too long. But um, my wife still has this terrible back condition, so we, we can't travel at the moment. But hopefully, oh, no. when she gets uh, uh, gets better, we will be over there annoying you. <laughs> uh, di- disc related, or what is it? Oh yeah, she, um, no, she's it's um, what do you call it? Um, a, a disc in her spine has gone. Oh Not yeah, gone. It's slipped. That's the word. Slipped. And Nasty. it's just the most excruciating, debilitating thing. And I, I don't know what the health service is like in Ireland, but over here, everything takes forever. So she did the injury last September, actually, uh, just before we came to Dublin. Uh, and it really ruined the whole thing for her. The best night we had was with, with uh, you guys at the Bleeding Horse, Mm. Um, the rest of the time she couldn't even sleep in the bed she had to sleep on the floor I mean it just went on for months and months and then eventually after a really long time um, she got to see specialists and she's having an MRI next week in fact Right. Yeah. Uh, but we've been told we might have to wait up to 8 weeks for the results so <laughs> it's just it's never ending fucking nightmare mm. I, I had a similar thing a few years ago I slipped a disc putting on my trousers uh, in the morning getting up for work and uh, I fell right. over onto the floor and uh, was like absolutely in bits for a long time so yeah I, I know the pain it's uh, it's not pleasant and it's never been the same since actually um, I don't think I've ever had fully functioning back <laughs> since then now. Well, well that is the that is the problem is there is no going back to normal I just mm. suddenly realised if I do that I can see you oh yeah I thought you, I thought you already <laughs> could see me no, I was looking at Garage Band and working out my levels. Oh, it's very yeah. important for me to get the right level. Absolutely, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. As you can tell from the technical mastery exhibited in in my own podcasts, you know, there <laughs> never been any complaints about the levels there. I certainly don't recall any. Um, anyway. No, no, definitely. Uh, so anyway, what are we talking about? Uh, well, I know we've talked about Iron Maiden before, but you know uh-huh. there's such a such a rich history there that um, you could talk about them on multiple podcasts, multiple episodes 
endlessly almost and there'd still be new things to talk about but i wanted to have a look at the period of um of 1989 to 1999 during that time most iron maiden fans would be aware adrian smith uh released his first solo album then left iron maiden in 1990 bruce dickinson released his first solo album then left iron maiden in 93 they ended up doing different things they released some solo albums themselves they worked together on bruce dickinson's albums and then they rejoined the band and i just wanted to look at it from somebody who was obviously writing about the band at the time and obviously you have written the book uh that we are all aware of run to the hills but um even to look back on it now and reflect uh, some 20 odd years on from that time period and what do you think led to those decisions at the time <clears throat> I can't be specific with Adrian um, but you know Adrian what made him so great for me in Iron Maiden was that he wasn't Dave Murray or Steve Harris. Yeah. He, um, uh, his sphere of influences were slightly broader, if you like. So Adrian, while uh, loving all the rock bands, obviously those were the main things, you know, he also understood pop music and he understood um, that world. Whereas, you know, a lot of rock and metal fanatics... I like that to the exclusion of all other music. Mm. Um, and Steve and Dave, a bit like that, uh, but not Adrian. And, and that's what made his work intriguing. You know, the uh, when he would write with Bruce in what I like to think of as the imperial period of Iron Maiden, that first 10 years. Um, yeah. You know, two minutes to midnight. Mm. Um, wasted years. What a great song. I mean, Adrian wrote all of Wasted Years on his own. Yeah. And then when you get to Seventh Son, again, I think his role is crucial in terms of melody, turning these kind of monolithic rock songs into stuff that uh, sounds good on the radio and, and gets them in the charts. I mean, Can I Play With Madness?, evil that men do there were so many great singles on that album and i think adrian had a lot to do with that and i wonder yeah, if sorry go on so i was going to say yeah he's writing credits on both of those songs and they're certainly the popular kind of singles uh, from that time period yeah i mean he, he he knew who david bowie was and he knew who um the rolling stones were and he, he knew all that stuff which the rest of the band were less less informed about and, and and less interested in um the clue i think is in the solo album asap which i still can never remember what that stands for but um adrian smith and project <laughs> which is ridiculous name <laughs> for a band but anyway they must listen almost 10 minutes of thought went into that okay so um i can't even remember that album i remember hearing it and thinking it was pretty good but definitely not very maiden-esque and i think mm. that's the thing about adrian there was a lot about him that was not maiden-esque you know he was the, yeah. the, i was gonna say the first possibly the only one to wear makeup on stage and off and he'd get chastised for it by Steve, you know. Um, mm. And I think the thing about about Somewhere in Time and then Seventh Son, uh, 
it kind of made Maiden as big as they were ever gonna be. But yeah. they they arrived slightly too late to arrest a steady decline in sales. So for me, Seventh Son, for instance, was probably the best album they did in that period. And yet it didn't sell as well overall um as Power Slave. Um my feeling was always if they'd released Seventh Son after Live After Death, I think it would have been almost as big as Zeppelin. Um because it had that contrast, it was it was quite it was maiden through and through, but it was also exploring a little more, you know, their limits, synthesizers, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and all of which it seems ludicrous to remind us now, but we're sort of frowned. Oh, absolutely sure. There's the famous... Ma- ki- 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 keyboards, you know. Yeah. The famous Bruce Dickinson uh, quote, you can't play heavy metal and synthesizers. I think that was only like from 1984, around that time, and a couple of years later. Just as Eddie Van Halen was writing Jump, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, One of the biggest songs of all time. Uh, so I think there was a... I, I think it was a... For me, it wasn't like one thing with Adrian. I think there was a genuine journey where he perhaps felt he'd done all he could um, and wanted to try other stuff. Mm. At the same time, being somewhat aware that perhaps they had peaked in terms of... I mean, what's the main reason for staying in any job? You know, the money's good. You feel like you're going somewhere. And then, and then something changes, and these things aren't as exciting as they used to be. You're looking at what other people are doing. You want to do that too. And I think maybe Adrian just thought that was a good moment to bow out. Um, none of us in 1988 could imagine talking about Iron Maiden as an ongoing concern in 2023. It was just... yeah. Uh, it seems it seems insane to think uh, yeah. at the time that they'd still be around. And he was what late twenties, um, and I think they still felt they had their life ahead of them. They still had options. They still had things they wanted to do that weren't necessarily to do with platinum records or gold singles. Hmm. So I think maybe that was Adrian Bruce. Do you think? Go on. Before we move on to Bruce, sorry, do you think Adrian? So you mentioned some of the songs there that he wrote, and you've got like wasted years, very commercial sounding song, probably the most commercial sounding thing they'd done by that point. Then the next album, they had the Evil That Men Do, Can I Play With Madness. These were top ten singles in the UK. Um, do you think that was more where Adrian wanted to be musically, and maybe he was a bit confined within Iron Maiden? for the types of songs he wanted to write. Because I remember a, a, a part in your book where there was a quote from Rod Smallwood that said something like, I was always a little concerned with having too much input from Adrian. So do you think that he felt like maybe shackled in the band to some degree? As one of the creative, the, the main creative influences, it reminds me a bit of Izzy Stradlin in Guns N' Roses. You know, he... He wasn't that full-on believer like Slash and Axel. But that's why he was such an important ingredient, because he wasn't that. But he brought this other thing 
this more kind of uh, groovy rock and roll thing. Um, mm. And it made it more intriguing. You know, it was just another element. And when you when you take that away, you lose something. And the emphasis becomes more on all the other stuff that you know you can do. Um, I think maybe as well, I mean, Adrian's very indecisive, you know, incredibly... He's not a man of action, mm. if you see what I mean. He will think about things yeah. for a long, long time. But there was a period after Seventh Son when it did look as if Maiden had somewhat peaked and, and were on the other side of the rainbow now because, um, you know, Guns and Roses uh, opened on the Seventh Son tour. I saw some of those shows and it was chalk and cheese. You know, there was no mm. overlap um, at, to the point where Axel Rose was mortified that he was having to uh, be on the Iron Maiden tour. And when they came to Irvine, Irvine Meadows in 88, two nights there um, in L.A., uh, he just didn't turn up. You know, the story, oh, he hurt his voice. The doctor said, yada, yada, yada. He just didn't turn up because mm. he didn't want to in LA his hometown and of course by then he's saying we're bigger than them anyway yeah which they were by that point hmm. you've also got Megadeth Metallica Anthrax Slayer you know there really was this Maiden were a little bit in the rearview mirror at this point particularly in America um, in the same way that I suppose Deep Purple and Black Sabbath would have felt in the 80s, you know. They're not Iron Maiden, they're not ACDC. Yeah. And I think, I, I sort of doubt Adrian thought it through that much, but if he had, that would have been the optimal moment to leave because it's the highest profile. Uh, you're jumping out of the ship before it has sunk. Hmm. So you can make an equitable move, and and people go fair play. He, you know, he did his tour of duty, gave us some great moments, and now he's off doing something else. But of course, it didn't pan out because Adrian isn't a front man. Yeah, and as I say, he's not a great leader or decision maker. And if you want to be a success in anything, including rock music, you need that kind of personality and that kind of drive and that vision, even if it's a bit warped, if it, it ha someone has to have an idea of what they a strong idea of where you're going and what you want to do. Um, so I suspect Adrian thought, yeah, Mick Ralph's left Mott the Hoople and formed Bad Company. You know, I mean, people do move on. It, it's very common in the 60s and 70s. You know, nearly all the great bands of the 70s came out of the remnants of. Of, of 60s leftovers whether it was Rod Stewart or Elton John or David Bowie mm. um, so I don't think it was a, I think it was a, from his point of view probably a good moment to bow out they were going to have a long break um, they weren't doing as well as they used to do in America yeah and I think it, you know, it just seemed like it, it, it's now or never and he did he did stick around for some of the writing of No Prayer for the Dying, which was framed at the time as a back to basics album. Um probably one of the least remarkable albums that Iron Maiden ever released. Um but yeah, he has he has one writing credit on that for the song Hooks and You, but 
he left basically at the time and you were saying like kind of after seven son is a perfect time to bow out but it seemed like he may have intended to stay but then when it came to this kind of back to basics approach he just wasn't having any of it then after doing something like seven son i don't know i don't know the answer to that but uh None of them enjoyed working on that album for the simple reason that they were working out of Steve Harris's brand new home studio. Home studios at that time were still regarded as, I suppose, like self-published books. You know, it doesn't mean the book is bad, but it just doesn't signal major investment and, and... epic profile i mean maiden had been going out you know, the bahamas to mm. make records yeah it's not exactly compass point uh, in uh, wherever that was no uh, if you read the book you'll see bruce complaining that it wasn't even a very good studio it meant martin birch had also retired so it now meant steve was essentially producing the album and like bruce said um it's a long time since I, I wrote the book, but um, from memory, he said something about, you know, it was like it wasn't quite finished and uh, you'd record down there, then you'd have to run up some stairs and check the, you know, what they were doing in the... Uh, and there was no interaction. You couldn't look through the glass into the studio because you were up there. Mm. Um, and he just said it was, you know, this running up and down. It was sort of a loft or something, you know. It does sound quite back to basics. But that was also to do with trying to save money. You know, these these huge albums had cost fortunes to make. Yeah. But they suddenly weren't selling like they used to. And, um, you know, there's the moment where your first album sells so much, your second does a bit better, your third does better. It's It's all investment. They'd plateaued. Sales-wise, they had plateaued. Mm. And um, Adrian's gone. We better batten down the hatches. Steve, Steve wants to work in his own studio, which means he wants it more his own way. And I think all of them felt very, um, you know, it's not the Bahamas. That There's no Martin Birch reigning Steve in. Well, M- Martin Birch did reduce that one. Uh, no prayer. And the next. Did one. he? Yes. <laughs> and then he was Get finished. The fuck. <laughs> he did. Yeah. I bet you. You sure Steve's not listed as co-producer? He probably is on there, all right. But yeah, no, it was. It was still. It was. I think Martin Birch's second last Iron Maiden album was No Prayer, and then he did Fear the Dark, and then that was it. Really? Well, I think the idea was that it's Steve's house. It's always been Steve's band, mm. and I think it just. It wasn't uh, favourable. No one liked it. You know, they they went from Whistleord Studios and Compass Point, and now it's Steve's shed in the garden, and you can't even fucking see in the studio. You've got to run upstairs and crouch, you know. Mm. Bruce, Steve and Adrian were the creatives. Dave Murray come up with one song every few years, and it would always be the same song, bless him, you know. Uh, Nico, zero input in terms as a songwriter just his own very unique drumming style so whether nico was having a good day or a bad day you know what he's going to sound like same with davy except davy never had bad days that you noticed 
Adrian Bruce for sure felt that they were they had more to their talents than just churning out Iron Maiden material. And and this was their moment. Maiden had plateaued. We're just starting to coincide. The studio's crap. The vibe is crap. Hmm. Um, good time to leave. So then, Bruce, um, we move on to Fear of the Dark. Adrian has left, and Yannick Gers is the new guitarist. Um, so No Prayer for the Dying gets released. They actually have a big hit single with Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter, but I don't think it's particularly well received by people at the time. Um, and then Fear of the Dark comes out then in '92. And they do a tour. At this point, Bruce has released his first solo album as well, Tattooed Millionaire, in 1990. Um, they do a tour, and they have a second tour planned in 93. And between those two tours, Bruce Dickinson decides to quit. What do you remember hearing about this at the time? Was this something that you saw coming? I didn't see Adrian leaving. I did see Bruce leaving, going way back. Him and Steve absolutely never got on. You know, mm. I've told you this before. They wouldn't yeah. even sit next to each other on the plane. Mm-hmm. Um, they wouldn't do interviews together. Uh, I'm sure Bruce would have, but Steve wouldn't. Mm. Um, used to call him the chimp. Right. He looked like Bill Oddie in those days. Um, I mean, that Seventh Sun tour, Steve didn't even travel on the bus with them. He had his own bus with his wife and kids and nanny and helpers and then the other bus was the other guys yeah so um steve had increasingly cocooned himself so that you know he was never outside his comfort zone yeah and i think what bruce in particular felt strongly was that they had to go beyond that in order to become a led zeppelin in order to become a legend as opposed to um, Motorhead or mm. Uriah Heep or, you know, these bands that just go on and on and on ploughing the same furrow. Um, Bruce and Steve never got on. By the time you get to the end of the Seventh Sun tour, Bruce is working on his first novel. Uh, he likes to go fencing. You know, he wants to pilot an aeroplane. I mean, all this stuff was considered a fucking joke <laughs> within the circles of the band. You know, of course he wants to be a fucking pilot. You know, it's Bruce. He probably wants to be a ballroom dancer as well. You know, it's oh, he's an author. Oh, of course he is. What can't he do? You know, um. But Bruce had his own fans and his own scene and his own yes-men and his own ambitions. And um, he gave it a go. You know, by, by, by the end, like uh, Fear of the Dark that time, they, they, you know, they had a fight. Steve knocked him out. Um, Steve was going through a divorce. Go back there for a second. They put a physical, a fist fight. Yeah, um, that final tour, according to Steve and many of the others, Bruce wasn't even trying. Mm. He was doing the classic Gillen. He wouldn't even do the words, you know. Yeah. Six sisters, you know, they, they said if you could hear it back through the desk and Steve would be going, that fucking cunt, what's wrong with him? You know. Mm. 
And it was he just he lost the will to live. He hated being there. In Europe, he'd be flying home to London every opportunity. Uh, I think Steve was still doing tech, tax exile thing in Portugal. So, and there was one occasion where Bruce, I don't know if this was the same thing or two different times, but same period, same tour. Uh, Bruce had gone back to London and bumped into Steve's wife. And when he got back, you know, he was doing that horrible thing. Oh, I saw so-and-so, you know. Yeah, she looked good. Oh, no, we had a great life. You know, all that stuff. Mm. You know, fuck off, man. You know what I mean? Mm. Fuck off. Now, I don't know if it was the same show or another one, but literally that, that, that time, um, he got back from London late. You know, the plane had been delayed. And, and so I think they still did the gig, but he literally arrived in the dressing room as they should be about to go on stage. Yeah. And as he walked in, Steve just punched him straight in the face. Right, I don't think I've ever heard this before. And he he went, Dan! He went, Dan! I had him! <laughs> Steve doesn't speak like that, by the way. But <laughs> a little bit like that. Um, now, you wouldn't want to get a fucking punch in the face from Steve Harris. Not in those days. Yeah. Not now, but in those days, definitely not. Um, and, you know, Tattooed Millionaire, you know, the... the, the Calling the album that, hmm. that was a song that specifically was about criticizing Steve. Because okay. Bruce has never had a tattoo and he's. Bruce never had a tattoo. Hmm. I thought it was a bit Nicky Six, but anyway. No. No? <laughs> All right, okay. Now, that was the cover story. Right. And that was because. Um, Nicky fucked his wife. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that, what I thought. Yeah. And then and then not only that, but because Bruce had shown Nicky some fencing, and obviously that was humiliating. Can you imagine Nicky Six fencing? <laughs> dude! That was my ass! You know, um, dude, I'd do some krell, then we'll pick up the swords, man. Uh, so Nicky, who could box, then took Bruce boxing and Mm. Beat the shit out of him. Dude, I'm so sorry. I just don't know my own strength. <laughs> um, no, no, the tattooed millionaire was Steve and Nico and Davey. Um, yeah, Bruce was ex-public schoolboy. Mm. One of the very first times I stood in their dressing room, he was warming up for the gig by on guard, you know, doing some... Everybody's sort of standing going, oh, fucking hell. What's he doing? Why is he doing it? (laughs) So you're saying basically anyway that you did, you could could have foreseen him leaving Iron Maiden eventually because of all all these things you mentioned, all of the extracurricular activities and and the personality clash. He, 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 in many ways, correctly perceived himself as... um, being more than just the singer of Iron Maiden. And when he would go around, you know, I accompanied him on a lot of these things. I I got him his deal with the publisher to be an author, God help me. Um, I remember hooking him up with the BBC and, you know, and all these London publishers and the BBC, you know, they loved him. 
because they were expecting some Grebo who couldn't string a sentence together. Mm. Mitchell! You know, and, and he came in and was articulate and could have a proper conversation about stuff that wasn't Iron Maiden. Mm. And so he became their go-to guy. Oh, no, he's, oh, he's, oh, he's lovely. Have you met? Oh, no, I was with Bruce. He was, oh, I love that guy. You know, it's all that mm. shit. Whereas perhaps, you know, they wouldn't have felt the same affinity, you know, with Nico. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, Bruce was very much encouraged to believe he was a Renaissance man and that he'd kind of outgrown Iron Maiden. We see it, you know, it happened with David Lee Roth. David Lee Roth, you know, what made him so great, one of the things that made him so great was he clearly had more going on than just uh, being Kevin DeBrow or, or Blackie Lawless. You know, he mm. he really had a brain and it was that extra spark that made Van Halen a little bit more special than other heavy rock bands of their era. Um, so this, you know, Axel and Guns, although he wasn't at all well-educated, but... Um, you know, getting rid of all the band because he felt he had a vision that went beyond public perception. Mm. It's a regular occurrence. I've suffered from it. I spent years trying not to be the heavy metal writer, yeah. um, uh, and then and then eventually I just gave up because I I couldn't no I couldn't earn any money doing anything else. Yeah, and that's what happened with these guys. In essence, in the end, yeah. So when Blaze Bailey joined Iron Maiden as the singer for The X Factor, did you feel that this was a stopgap? Did you feel that it was the long-term solution for the band? Um, I thought it was an inspired appointment at the time because I'd been a big Wolfsbane fan uh, and Blaze was all energy. Uh, you know, they, they, Wolfsbane were always sort of compared like an English Van Halen, you know. Yeah. Um, and they had that same kind of humour and charisma. And Blaze would scurry about the stage and antics and fall over and just be incredibly larger than life. Uh, so I just thought, oh, shrewd, you know. I was a bit sad for Wolfsbane because it meant the end of them. But, mm. you know, there you go. So I thought it was a good choice. Um, but, you know, no Adrian, no Bruce. You know, Yannick is... I first met Yannick when he joined Gillen in 1981. Um, and I remember in those days... You know, Gillen were a rock band. So to normal people, they'd have thought they were heavy metal. Yeah. But the only one who had long hair was Ian Gillen. He had long hair down to his waist. But everybody else in those days had short hair, uh, including Bernie Torme, the previous guitarist, had an eye patch and spiky hair. He could have been a punk, you know. And Yannick joined with no makeup, no eye patch, no hair product. <laughs> Just straight long hair. I remember in the very first tour program, because I wrote it, um, everybody you know has lots to say. Each member gets to say stuff. And then it comes to Yannick, and he just went, I have long hair. 
And that was it. And it was brilliant. It summed it up. It totally summed up why he was going to be a hero in that band. Mm. Um, so I always liked him and always rated him. But for me, he was. it was a bit like now having two Dave Murrays in the band. Um, both great guitarists, both soloists. Yeah. Um, but apples and apples. Whereas when Adrian was in there, apple and orange, you know, you had that frisson, that extra thing that made them special. Yeah. When it worked, when it worked. Um, but now no Bruce either. To me, I thought, well, this really is now the Steve Harris solo band. Um, there's no one really challenging him. And there's no one coming in with songs better than his, yeah. you know, which Adrian and Bruce are able to do, or certainly as good. Um, and so I didn't really know what to expect, but it was actually, you know, commercially it was a disaster. Yeah. Um, it, it, they were de- Now they were now completely dead in the water in America and many other places. It was as if they'd broken up. Then, um, were you yeah. surprised to see Adrian Smith join up with Bruce Dickinson for Accident of Birth in 97, which to most people sounded like an Iron Maiden album? Um, I was working as Bruce's PR okay. in, 90, in 96, um, straddling the period... And I can't remember what it was called. He did a he did an out. Is it Mark Z or something? Roy Z. Roy Z. He did an album with Roy Z, which I worked on, and I really liked that album. But it was kind of like Bruce Dickinson sings Santana. Um, <laughs> Roy Z. I I loved Roy Z, and I thought that was a great record. But it was very kind of I like Santana. Hmm. You know, I like instrumental music. I like all kinds of music. So for me, it was like, hmm, interesting. Yeah, you know. It sold fuck all. was a complete disaster commercially. And Bruce himself told me that um, I think they wouldn't even release it in Japan. Okay. You know, it got to the stage now where these really are like self-published books. I'm on an indie label, you know. Yeah, yeah. It would come out here and a certain amount of fans would get it, but it was making no sense anywhere. We're now in the time when grunge has taken over, new metal is on the way, and if you don't like any of that, well, here's Oasis, you know. um, (laughs) They, they, when they needed to be at their strongest, they were at their weakest, and Bruce didn't just didn't have the name. He didn't have that heft, the credibility or the commerciality. So he told me that there was no real encouragement for him to do another solo album. By that, what you mean is who's going to pay me money to do it? Who's going to promote it? Who's going to invest in a new Bruce Dickinson album? And no one was interested. Um, or it, we could make it cheap, you know. And then the message came back from Japan. Uh, If you make a record that is like Iron Maiden, we promise you we will sell this in Japan. Okay. Uh, 
And so he rang Adrian, whose own career had gone right down the shitter, mm. and um, said, look, it reminds me a bit of me and John Hotton, you know, when I get an offer to do a certain book that, you know, only coming out in Japan or something, you know. <laughs> I'll get my old mucker in. We'll bash that out. No fucking problem. Bingo, ka-ching. Thank you very much, sayonara. So he called Adrian just said, look, I've got this much money. I'll give you this much. We'll write some fucking songs. Hmm. What else are we doing? But people really liked that record, and they went, fuck, you still got it. This, this, this could be made. This is better than Maiden. Yeah. So I don't know if it was, but... It was better than the Blaze Maiden because uh, I was quite surprised when I finally got to see Blaze um, how the whole thing was reduced. Hmm. So I saw them at Nottingham Rock City. And I think the time I'd seen them previously had either been at Donington in 88 to 106,000 people or the two nights uh, at Irvine Meadows, which was 18,000 people a night. And now they're at Nottingham Rock City, which it's a club. Yeah, yeah. It's a big club. It's a big, rocking, great venue. But how many does it hold? 1,500? 2,000? And Blaze didn't move. He didn't move. He was completely still at the mic. Uh, and I was told later that was because... In Wolfsbane, he was able to do his thing and run around and be out of breath. But in Maiden, particularly with the Bruce material, he, he really had to bring his voice. Yeah. Can you imagine trying to sing Bruce Dickinson's songs? Oh, absolutely not. Oh. Yeah. Uh, I mean, run to the... <laughs> What's that, Blaze? <laughs> you know, um, yeah, he had his work cut out for him. He... He really did, poor guy. And he never quite, he was never quite accepted, particularly by the roadies, which is, that's a real sign of, that's a real barometer on where you are in the hierarchy. Um, so uh, the confluence, really, of uh, X Factor not doing so good. There was a certain novelty value. People wanted to hear what it sounded like. But then by the next album, Virtual Eleven, you know, that sold even less. Um, I couldn't even name you a track off it. I used to be able to name one or two, but... Angel and the Gambler. How's it go? Don't you think I could save your life? Mm. <laughs> ha Sorry, how's it go? <laughs> I'm not doing it again. <laughs> Fergal Bailey there, folks. Um, so what? what is that? That's 93. 98 and the Adrian and Bruce made an album comes out in 97 so by the time you get to the end of 98 because they weren't even they couldn't they couldn't get arrested in America yeah anymore no promoters would book them the record label wouldn't push the records and Rod literally said look you tell me what you need and they said, well, we need Bruce back. Hmm. So that's what they did. That's what Rod did. He went and got Bruce back. And uh, and Bruce said, I'll come back if, if Adrian comes too. And Steve said, that's okay as long as Yannick stays. 
Yeah, fair enough. But do you remember when this all started? To me, like, these things would take quite a while to put together. You'd have contracts and all this type of legal stuff, probably, and various things like that. Um, but, like, it, it's framed kind of when it's the story's been retold as well. Steve met Bruce in a pub. They sat down and they had a conversation and they put the band back together. But, like, was were, would wheels have been in motion earlier than that or months earlier, like in 98? Yeah, yeah, because the whole idea was this was going to relaunch Iron Maiden. It was a bit like that episode of Dallas where for a whole season Bobby is dead. Oh, yeah. And, and it's such a fucking disaster when the new season begins with him coming out of the bathroom. It was all a dream. <laughs> you know. um, Blaze was all a dream. That was the strategy. And uh, it's not at all that Bruce and Adrian are desperate because they've got no career either. No, sir. This is love of metal. Hmm. Um, don't forget, Rod still managed all of them. You know, he was Iron Maiden's manager. He was Bruce Dickinson's manager. He was Adrian Smith's manager. Yeah. And... They were having they, they they couldn't get in the game. You know, there was talk about doing a tour with Judas Priest. Well, that's not gonna fly unless Bruce is in the group. Mm. Um you know, uh will you be at the next Rock in Rio or Donington or whatever it is? You just couldn't get in those spaces anymore. And that was partly because I mean, even Kerrang magazine who'd been synonymous with Iron Maiden throughout the 80s, they weren't doing metal anymore. You know, I had a hell of a time trying to get them to even do Dio or Lemmy, who I also was doing PR for at the time. Hmm. Because it was all grunge all the time. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, I, we, we the first issue of Classic Rock was October 98. And... I couldn't get a single record company to send us albums to review. Right. That sort of rock, that old, fa what we called classic rock, that old-fashioned rock, that's dead. Mm. Didn't you know that? It died when Nevermind came out. Dude, it's been over a long time. What's wrong with you? Um, and, of course, it wasn't. It was actually the beginning, right at the beginning of the whole classic rock thing becoming a real industry yeah it was back before labels uh got ditched the idea of pushing music forward and just went into catalog box sets tours where you tour the the classic album you know all that stuff was in the future yeah but it was fairly obvious it was coming to people that knew, but most people didn't know. So that they were all, Iron Maiden and Bruce and Adrian, they were all completely off the radar by the end of 98. Um, and literally it's only Rod Smallwood was the only person in the whole of the business that gave Classic Rock magazine two seconds of his time. Mm. That was mainly because all his bands couldn't get in any of the other magazines, <laughs> which is how he ended up with the exclusive on Bruce and Adrian rejoining the band. But it was very much, you know, there was just nothing you could do with that machine until you'd put those pieces back together. Now, suddenly, we've got a fighting chance. Yeah. And then 
talking about the whole kind of classic rock as an industry, uh, record companies relying on catalogs, teamed tours, all that type of stuff. How important was the reformation of Iron Maiden with Bruce and Adrian in that whole movement? Would it be in the same situation now? if they hadn't got back together and, and had been successful? I don't know. I think that stuff would have happened anyway. Okay. Um, I think Maiden rode in on that horse uh, very shrewdly, um, uh, well executed. Um, and, and, and and why not? You know, the only, the only invite, the only condition of membership to that club is that you really did put out all these great albums you really were this awesome band in their time. Uh, and we now celebrate that, you know, enough time has gone past where you're no longer uncool or, or out of date. You're back, baby. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I remember being, um, I used to do a, a radio show every Friday for the BBC in London. And uh, it was a, a no budget, very low-key thing, but it was the BBC and it was London's local BBC. And um, I remember some of the stuff... It was a Friday night. Eight, I used to start at 8 on a Friday night. Of course, it's Friday night, so people are going out. I remember this group of people that worked there burst through the door at about quarter past 8. And they were so excited to tell me they were off to see Black Sabbath. <laughs> because I did the rock show, rock and metal yeah, yeah, show. Yeah. I was like, guess where we're going? Black Sabbath. It was to them it was like, yeah. I don't even know if they'd ever bought any Black Sabbath records. It was just mm-hmm. Yeah. Or Kiss. Yeah, yeah. It's just one of those, you know? And uh I was like, really? Um I didn't want to break their hearts. But at that point, the only member of Black Sabbath that was in Black Sabbath was Tony Iommi. <laughs> the the singer was um, what was he? The cat. What Tony Martin. Name? Tony, yes. The singer was Tony Martin. The bass player was Neil Murray. The drummer was Cozy Powell, and the keyboard player was Don Airy. I mean. Basically, Tony Iommi and all the fucking regulars from everybody else's albums. Not Black Sabbath. But they were, go- we're going to see Black Sabbath. I, I remember it with Quo in about, uh, I did some work with them in like 2002 or something. And they came to Oxford near where I live and uh, they did the New Theatre, which is a small concert venue. And the place was packed with students from Oxford University. I couldn't understand it. And then I cottoned on as the gig went on. I could sort of get the vibe. So bad, it's good. (laughs) Where are you going tonight? We're going to see status quo. Yeah! It was that sort of thing. Mm. And I think um, Maiden have totally earned the right to be that. Um, and I think the 90s were really problematic for them because, you know, Ozzy couldn't get on to um, Perry Farrell's thing, Lollapalooza, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. because he wasn't cool enough. So that's why Sharon, who's very bloody-minded, 
started Ozfest. Mm. Well, Maiden were even less cool than Ozzy, you know. I mean, Ozzy had a certain cachet with cool people. But Maiden, it was just tremendously... It's what made them so brilliant in the 80s was they were defiantly long-haired metal. Hmm. But by the mid-90s, it was what kind of made them so unappealing to anybody that wasn't like that. Sure, yeah. Um, Bruce and Adrian were the ones that helped re-establish that. So thinking then, you know, you were saying in 1988, nobody had any notion that Iron Maiden would still be a gone concern in 2023. What do you think it would take now to finish Iron Maiden? Well, infirmity, illness and death. Um, I mean, Steve's got to be, what, 66 now? I think so, yeah. Bruce, we know, um, you know, has had cancer. Um, I'm I'm the same age as those guys. Bruce and I are the same age. Um, and those are the big ones. Um, the other ones that stalk us of a particular generation are things like just not giving a fuck anymore. You mm. know, I mean, I'm just not wanting to because touring is touring is very arduous, even at the top end. Um, and do you think and, though, like if Nico stepped away, do you think they'd continue? We got a new drummer. Do you think who like is it just Steve and Bruce? Do you think are the irreplaceable members at this point, or do you think other people leaving would cause them to stop? I think if Nico left, uh, they would. If they wanted to, it'd be very easy for them to get another drummer. I think if Dave Murray left. I don't think they'd get another guitarist. I think they'd just carry on with the two. Because three is too much. Let's be honest, you know. Um, If Bruce was to leave, I think that might be it. Yeah. Um, And obviously, Steve, there's no leaving with him. It's his band. True, of course. It's his ball that they're playing with. So if he goes home, there is no game. Yeah. Um. But I th- honestly, I think they're at that stage where, it, you know, why would anybody leave? I mean, they don't work that hard, do they? I mean... Well, I know, yeah, but I mean, even just yourself there saying maybe just not wanting, maybe not giving a shit, enough of a shit to be going on tours <laughs> anymore. Um, well, it's true, but they they don't do the tours like they used to do. I mean, yeah. you know, the tours they did in the 80s were insane. Hmm. And now it's just big show, couple of days off, big show, couple of days off. And also that whole classic rock market has matured in terms of uh, how you put a tour together, how the promoters uh, put the facilities together. You know, you don't need to see anybody you don't like until Mm. you're on stage. Yeah, and the stages are so big, you don't even, even have to. I mean, look at Motley Crue. You know, they they they, they can do what they want to do. They're not mm. even playing half the time, and they can do what they want to do. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Maiden do play, um, and I think they love what they do. But I, I personally don't think there'll be a big announcement. I think probably it will just be festivals and you know that sort of uh managing managing things so they can end without a big fuss sure okay they keep saying they're going to retire they keep saying this next album's the last one mm. 
uh, and so far it hasn't been. Well, one one thing I always remember is uh, from I think it was an issue of Classic Rock in 2003, and Steve Harris said. I won't be doing this in my 60s, although when I was in my 30s, I said I wouldn't be doing this in my 40s. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And now he's staring his 70s in the face. Exactly. Mick Jagger is now 80 years old. Mm. 80. 80. And, of course, Keith Richards actually died back in 72, and he's still going. (laughs) Yes. Very good. All right. Well, look, that was a that was okay. a great chat. Uh, nice to cover that period of the band. I, I, I find it's a really interesting time period, and it almost seems inevitable that like Bruce and Adrian did rejoin. But there was a few years there where uh, wasn't looking particularly good, and then they just really turned it around. But probably one of the biggest turnarounds ever in rock music, I think. Well, they've always been incredibly authentic. You know, Steve leaves nothing on the table. He puts it all into the music, and. We live in an age now where we it's not like, well, do they have a new record? Are you going to go and see Maiden? Do they have a new record out? Who cares? Do you want to see Iron fucking Maiden hmm. before you die? Yeah, it, it's bucket list time. And, and, and let's be fair, they've always been a fantastic live band. I mean, yeah. that's how I kind of fell in love with them in the 80s, was seeing them live. I... I I had a younger brother who was crazy about them from the word go. So I knew they were good. But seeing them live, wow. Wow. All right, so that was Mick Wall talking about Iron Maiden from the period of 1989 to 1999. Some juicy nuggets in there, things I hadn't heard before, specifically about Steve and Bruce uh, having a fistfight, or at least Steve punching Bruce. Uh, I did very much enjoy Mick's impression of Steve Harris. I don't know why I find impressions of Steve Harris so funny, probably because he's such a kind of private and reserved individual. It's always funny to hear people sending him up. Yeah, that's going to do it anyway for this episode of Feckin' Metal. I have some more I have to release of a few in the can. You'll be hearing from me very soon. Looking forward to meeting a few of you, as I said, at the Iron Maiden shows in Dublin, Glasgow and Manchester. It's going to be a great month in June. Um, Really looking forward to it. But until next time, I've been your host, Virgil Trainer, and I will see you whenever I see you, I suppose. Oh, my God.